This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I am Brandon Pollan, and tonight I'm actually running solo. Tonight, F. Scott Field, who's normally with me, is not able to join because he had some family issues that came up that required his urgent attention, so we will be missing him for this evening. But today, we actually have a very, very special guest on, and actually, first of all, I would like to kind of give a shout out to Will Butler for referring our next guest our way, as Will Butler sent me an article a few months ago that this guy wrote out about, you know, the communication loop. And the guest that we have on tonight is Jason Yur. And the article that Will sent me that Jason wrote was called Lost in Translation. And, you know, I read his article and I found it very insightful, to be honest. And after reading it, I was like, I got to reach out to this guy and get him on the show. You know, Jason's also been featured on the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast with Karen Litzy, as well as the Clinical Athlete podcast. And Jason Yur is a physical therapist practicing out of Fairfax, Virginia at Select. And he is an online instructor through the University of St. Augustine, where he teaches evidence-informed practice. He got his bachelor's degree in human nutrition and exercise from Virginia Tech University in 2011, and he graduated from the University of St. Augustine in 2013, where he earned his DPT, and he was awarded the Stanley Paris and Catherine Patla Award for Excellence in Manual Therapy. And he has worked as a volunteer assistant strength and conditioning coach at both the University of Richmond and Virginia Tech. Now, first and foremost, Jason, thanks a lot for coming on with us today to talk about optimal communication and kind of how that impacts learning and teaching. Now, I understand I kept your bio pretty brief, but, you know, was there anything that I left out of the intro that you'd like our listeners to know about you? Uh, yeah, well, first, I, I really appreciate the intro. It was pretty flattering, and then I'm excited to join you today. So, I mean, I guess the biggest thing I want to add is just to give a little bit more background on kind of how I came to even care about some of these things that I, I write about. So, as you mentioned, I, I did come from a background of performance training. So, I worked in strength and conditioning at Virginia Tech and the University of Richmond. And the culture in that field is very much one of where you have this apprenticeship style of learning, where what you know, how you coach, how you program, it's all really anchored to basically the people directly around you. And it's not to say that like there aren't really science-based coaches out there. And it's definitely growing, especially with people like Greg Knuckles and Brad Schoenfeld and Mike Isratel and and even some of the guests you've had on the podcast before that I've heard that, that do a great job of science communication where they'll take all this this literature out there, kind of reformat it, put it in a package that's really digestible and then provide it for coaches to use in a pragmatic way. And so that's definitely getting better. But for me, I know when I was coming along, I had a really toxic relationship with external evidence and science in general. So like I wouldn't have used these words at the time, but like I I didn't think the studies being done were representative of the athletes I was coaching or the programs I was writing. 
the sample sizes were terrible. The study durations were way too short and it kind of guaranteed type two errors in a lot of the, uh, the results. So like I completely discredited science as an information source for me to use as a coach. And so that process I had of getting knowledge was really fundamentally flawed. Like I was very vulnerable with that for accepting pseudoscience as fact. And, and basically it just came down to the credibility of the people around me for what I would accept and what I would do. And so, you know, fortunately when I got into PT school, I kind of got introduced to a few people that, that kind of made me see the light in a sense and, and helped me kind of see the error in my thinking. And so because of that journey, I, I can really empathize and understand people who are critical and a little bit cynical when it comes to the evidence-based practice movement. But importantly, like I know the value of moving past that mindset and how like important it can be to adopt a scientific based approach for gaining knowledge when it comes to clinical practice. Yeah, no, Jason, I think that's a really, really powerful point there in terms of with your story and such. And I think you're right. It definitely does bring, you know, up the, the, the topic of, you know, we really have to be careful about the limitations of the evidence. And I think, you know, of course, being able to find that in a systematic way and being able to find the light like you did is is so critical, you know, and it's hard because not all research, like you said, is not always reflective of the patient population or clientele that you're always seeing. So I, I, I do agree. I think those are some definite issues that can go, that can definitely be a part of that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the important part is understanding, like my, my biggest problem was I didn't understand the limitations of the scientific process and I was expecting a little bit too much. I didn't know how to integrate it appropriately. And, and unfortunately, that's not isolated to the field of strength and conditioning. We see that all the time in, in our realm as well. And so, you know, that's why I spend so much time writing about some of the things that I do is because I, again, I, I just see how important that can be. Yeah, no, totally. Make a good point there. And and Jason, for our listeners who have not read your article, Lost in Translation, do you think that you could provide a brief overview of the communication loop and some of the other big takeaways from your article and, and kind of how this relates to learning? Uh, sure. So... The communication loop is basically just a visualization of the process that occurs when we're exchanging information with somebody. So I'll keep it really simple. I mean, their entire course is dedicated to communication theory, but so I'm obviously not going to go in depth on that level because I would do it a major disservice. But so if you imagine, so the person trying to send a message encodes a message and then is going to transmit it via some medium. And that's going to depend on how you're engaging with somebody. So if you're in person, it's going to be verbally. You're going to have body language impacting that. If you're talking online, which we typically do with a lot of people nowadays, it's going to be through some sort of text. And then that message gets received and that needs to be interpreted and decoded. And then a person provides some actual feedback to the initial sender via whatever medium you're, you're going through. Um, and so what really inspired me to write the article I did was that I would consistently see these really annoying trends where the message being delivered was not the same message that was perceived by the interpreter. So yeah. then whenever you have that breakdown, it immediately kind of derails the conversation. It'll kind of offshoot into some tangents. And then unfortunately, that ends up in a really a conversation that doesn't have any really constructive value. And you don't have to really search far to find examples of this, unfortunately. Like, you know, log into Facebook and scroll down your feed. You'll find one instantly. Log into yeah. any of the professional groups. And you really don't have to go very far. Find one on any, you know, sort of controversial topic. 
in the first one or two comments, somebody will misinterpret the message and then it'll get offshoot into some emotional tangent. Yeah, no, for sure. Unfortunately, that's, that's the absolute truth. And, you know, it, it's crazy too, how sometimes even such a simple, so many simple steps that can be done to even clarify, like, if we're not sure, ask for clarification, like, don't assume anything. Like, if you're not sure, ask what that means before you really formulate your response. Oh, man. Yeah. If only people would actually take the time to do that, though. <laughs> Those knee-jerk reactions are pretty powerful and people don't necessarily take a step back and take a breath before they engage. And that's that's always a problem. But in my article, I, I, I guess what I try to do is outline some of the common misperceptions that occur and explicitly kind of outline them. And so some of the big ones I hit on were dealing with personal self-worth and then basically the importance of the mentors and the colleagues of the professionals. And then the idea of cookbook medicine too. Some of my pet peeves that I just wanted to kind of outline so that we can move past those in conversations. Yeah, no, you make a good point there. And and Jason, something that I've learned, unfortunately, through failure a lot is that it's not always necessarily always what you say, but it's how you say it and how you frame it. And, you know, for our audience, what are some strategies for the speaker to minimize the risk of a listener generating an inaccurate perception or response to what was said? Yeah, absolutely. The framing and tone of your message are extremely important. And I'm, I'm sure we'll dive into that in a minute. So I'll kind of sidestep that for now. But so there are a couple of things you can probably do to make sure your message isn't being misinterpreted. First, it, it's really important that you're just aware of the common things that people will misperceive when you're you're going into a topic like this. And so that's why I write the articles I write. So I try to make people aware of that. But I'll actually I'll steal a concept from the entertainment industry. Because I, I care way too much about movies, so I'll, I'll use this. But So within a movie, if there's something that appears that seems really either super convenient or really cliche or seems out of the norm for the, the whatever narrative is going on in the story, there's a concept called hanging a lantern where the director or the writers will like explicitly point that out and let the audience know that it's not there by mistake, it's done by design, and that way they'll kind of take their guard down and accept it and move on without being overly critical of it. And so that concept, when you can apply it to a basic communication, would be like, say, I am engaging on a topic about some sort of technique, right? And there's no real efficacy behind it. And I will explicitly say up front, you know, this isn't about you as a clinician. I don't think this means you're not a good clinician. I don't think this means you're not getting good outcomes, but I don't think this technique has anything to do with those outcomes. And just throwing that out there right up front and just making them aware of that can go a long way in just avoiding that potential offshoot. Yeah, for sure. It's like you're trying to give them the heads up saying, hey, it's not attacking you. It's just bringing up the concern that I had about the technique. Like it, the going for the belief does not mean challenging identity. Exactly. And that's huge. And that's unfortunately, so many people become so tied to their techniques or their ideologies that they can't seem to separate that from them as an individual. And that's when we run into a lot of trouble. Yeah, no, that, that's a very, very true statement. You know, and Jason, kind of going back to the communication theory, you know, what are some of the big ways that you feel that this can be applied in the classroom and with students? And how can maybe teachers maybe use that a little bit more to be a little bit more effective? Yeah. So when it comes to a classroom, it, I guess it depends on the perspective we're taking. So if we're looking at this from the instructor standpoint, like it's not going to be too difficult for them to influence the beliefs of the people around them because 
they're perceived as an authority figure and the students are highly incentivized to adopt whatever philosophy they're trying to sell them on, right? So it doesn't really deal too much with that aspect of it. But where it's really important is, again, this concept of making sure the message you're sending out is being perceived appropriately by the students. And so really just you want to make sure, as you were alluding to earlier, that just open communication is going to be so important here. You want to create an environment where students are feeling like free to openly ask questions and clarify things without making it seem like they're vulnerable or they'll be criticized or perceived as less intelligent for doing that. And that can be hard because, you know, a lot of that's out of your control, but, but just to at least foster that type of environment where people feel free to question and clarify is really important. And then other things you could do would be to kind of just make sure you have some sort of feedback mechanism. You, you give some sort of assessment periodically and it doesn't need to be graded or anything like that, but at least some sort of, of way to check to make sure the message is getting across as intended. And then people are able to take that information and integrate it in the way you want it to. So that can be another tool to help you with that as well. If it's coming from the student's perspective, um, that can be a little bit different. But again, it comes back to just making sure if there's any room for interpretation, if there's anything that seems questionable, frame it in your own words, repeat it back, and just make sure that you get some sort of feedback on that to make sure you're getting the message appropriately. Yeah, no, I think those are some really good points. And I like the one that you said about from the instructor's point of view, about kind of really kind of asking for kind of like a summary or kind of just checking in to check it and make sure that, you know, the content had been understood and the correct interpretation of that had been understood as well. I think that's a very important concept with that. And, you know, I'm going to kind of switch gears here a little bit here, Jason, and kind of relate that more to clinical setting because as providers and such, we kind of relatively do the same thing to slightly different degrees every day with treating patients. And I think those are some strategies that some of those strategies could transition in to clinical. But the one that I'm curious to get your opinion on, and I just kind of just thought of this one here, is how do you really kind of ask for sometimes that summation thing? Because sometimes you want to you want to verify that a patient gets it, but sometimes you know they're saying yes when they really don't. <laughs> you know, right. and and you want to see if they can if there's a way that you can get them to say it back. But my thought, my question to you is, how can you get that answer without? it being, you know, demeaning. Right. Yeah. You want to be careful not to lead them to say certain things because then, you know, you don't know if they actually remember that or, you know, put that to memory. But um, I'm going to steal something I got from Kieran O'Sullivan. I heard him say in a podcast back when I was a student several years ago. And so what he would typically do would be after he goes through his assessment with the patient and he'll talk to them about their condition and their prognosis, he'll just simply say, so when you go home tonight and you talk about this visit, what are you going to tell the person? And instantly what that does is when you hear whatever they have to say, it tells you what they valued from the experience. It gives you a little bit of information about the patient. And then you get to immediately see if they kind of misperceived anything you went over. And it gives you an opportunity to kind of correct that right there. Yeah, no, that's a great line. And that's definitely something I'm going to implement tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> that that's great man and and it's you know it can be so frustrating because you can go through this this entire process where you're doing your best little spiel about education and then you'll ask them kind of what they took away from that and it is nothing like i said so that can um, yeah. it can be eye-opening in a way yeah what i normally tend to do is you know i know there's different there's different styles you know between visual verbal auditory kinesthetic there's different ways that people learn and such and i usually find that 
at least for most of my clients, a combination of all of them to a degree with, you know, being able to modify based on their main method from a certain things is, is tricky at times. And I think sometimes what I've found is trying to integrate a little bit of each one and see if that sticks. And if not, I can kind of play around with the different ones and see which one works better. Yeah. And that's huge. I mean, our abilities as clinicians is largely dictated by our ability to connect socially with people and pick up on those cues and have emotional intelligence. So those aspects, you can't highlight them enough because they play such a role in how effective we'll be. Yeah, no, totally. You're right. And, and Jason, I kind of want to switch and kind of talk about, you know, there's an article that I read not too long ago that really grabbed my attention. It was by um, Ozan Varel and it was titled, um, facts don't change people's minds. Here's what does. And and we'll discuss the other points made in the article soon, but, you know, initially it talks about how we tend to hold on to certain beliefs and that we undervalue evidence that contradicts our beliefs and overvalue evidence that confirms them, which I do agree and I think that's true and I'm guilty of that myself. And we see this very often and prevalent in the healthcare arena when it comes to patients and providers as well. And, you know, I'm kind of curious, what were your thoughts on this concept and kind of what were some of your takeaways from the article? Yeah, well, one of the big takeaways was this this article came out like just a couple of weeks after I wrote my article. And so I wish I had written it a little bit more like this article. <laughs> um, they bring up a lot of great points, as, as you kind of alluded to. And a lot of it somewhat echoes what I was going over when it comes to the idea of separating beliefs from your identity and making people aware of a lot of the common pitfalls we we fall prey to when it comes to that. When it comes to things like framing messages and how we need to adjust what we're saying and, and how we're saying it based on the individual in front of us, that's something that really is very important when it comes to the art of persuasion. And, and that this article does a great job of outlining that as well. I know you probably have a couple other things you highlighted and want to talk about. So, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious what you took away. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree. I thought it was very interesting and I think it brought up a lot of good points on top of what you said. And, you know, after reading it, there were a couple lines in there that really, really stood out to me. And, you know, the first one that I thought of was when I heard, we have to forgive ourselves for what we didn't know in the past. And initially, I, as a first-year clinician who didn't know a lot, and, you know, I didn't know a lot of – and I still don't know a lot, to be honest with you. Um, but compared to where I was before, I feel like I've learned a lot since then. And, you know, and the hard part is, you know, from the failure that you've done before, and you're like, gosh, I wish I would have known this then, or I wish I would have done this that way then. And it's hard, and it can really take a toll if you if you dwell in that arena and really let it tear you down. But, you know, I've learned that, you know, we have to reflect, not dwell – and move on and got to forgive ourselves for what we didn't know. So to me, that just immediately hit personal. I was like, that's, that's absolutely spot on. Yeah. And that, that's huge. I mean, you have to be able to forgive yourself and understand you're doing the best you can with the available information that you have at the time. And you know, times change, our information sources change. We, we know more, we can adapt, adopt different philosophies, but you know, you just can't beat yourself up for stuff that the unknown unknowns in that equation. Yeah, no, totally. Well, a big one that he said was get out of your echo chamber. So basically what he was saying in there is that people with like minds and opinions tend to gravitate and interact with people that have similar mindsets and beliefs. Pretty common. But what he said in there is to get out of your echo chamber and be open to other ones. And, and you know, and he, he said this quote, you know, strong beliefs loosely held. So that means that you're able to be open to change. It doesn't mean you're just going to automatically assume and accept everything that's told to you, but you're, a, but you're open enough to to research more and have an open mind on certain things that perhaps challenge it. And he even said a question that needs to be asked is, 
that you need to ask yourself to see if you are really ready for change is, what would it take for me to change my mind on whatever the topic is? And if the answer is nothing, then you are not ready for that change. Yeah, no, that's that's so important. Where I actually, I wrote about that a little bit previously in the past and I use a very similar line. And it, it's something that is entirely important. We're so worried about what other people think. We don't take a lot of time to be introspective and make sure we're checking all of our boxes off. So I really like a Bayesian way of thinking in terms of probabilities. And, and inherent to that thought process is that you're never 100% sure of anything. Like, you know, if you zoom out or zoom into a point, yeah, you can be pretty sure that certain concepts are held valid across time. But for the most part, there's always going to be some wiggle room, right? And as long as you're aware of that and you, you hold the belief that you could be wrong in some way, it's going to serve you very well. And when it comes to getting out of your echo chamber, what you were talking about there, I mean, I just want to reiterate how important that is. And it, it's not comfortable. It's not a pleasant experience all the time, but it's it's so valuable. Like looking at research from guys like Hugo Mercier has done a lot of work in this area. It It's just shown how important that can be because everyone assumes that if we're given a problem and we just kind of lock ourselves away, we give ourselves enough time and we spend enough effort on something, we can, you know, logically go through a problem come up with reasons and and eventually get to some sort of truth about the problem, right? But what research has really shown is that that's not the case at all. We're good at finding justifications for our intuitive beliefs. And oftentimes that's a far cry from what's an actual accurate representation of what's going on. And so we need people who have different perspectives to be able to challenge our biases and point out where we're maybe, you know, over or underemphasizing something. And without that, if we're only, you know, constantly trying to reason through things ourselves, if we're dealing with people with our same perspective, we'll kind of just reinforce those same problems over and over again and become more confident in them without ever really checking ourselves or, or getting a different viewpoint. So it's, it's so valuable to be able to take emotions out of the equation and just honestly engage with people who can give you a different mindset. Absolutely. And I think that's definitely a big thing for growth as well. I'm sure you've heard it before, maybe even used it. I know I have of the the expression of get comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And everybody always refers to that in terms of some, you know, usually financial situation or maybe work hours or work environment, but people never relate that to philosophically or cognitively. And we really need to get used to being uncomfortable, being challenged in that way as well. Because if we don't engage and we don't, you know, have that appropriate level of stress behind us, we're, there's no motivation for change or to get better. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely true. I couldn't agree more. So Jason, ideally, you know, we as educators, whether it be to a student or a patient, we hope that that learner is able to intrinsically reflect and, you know, realize the areas where they need further development, you know, but let's say, for example that a learner is completely unaware of something that they need to improve on. And we're asking what their opinions are and to see what their self-reflection process is. And it's perhaps not accurate or in line kind of what we're thinking. And, and the instructor has tried, you know, indirect cueing various ways and trying to get them to ask what's been going on to see if they can figure it out. But now they're realizing that they need to try something more direct. Realizing, of course, that this varies based on the issue and this, you know, I realize this is not going to be a one answer fits all, but, but, you know, but what do you feel are some of the best ways to directly address something like this with a student or a patient to avoid, you know, crushing their confidence and actually help them see your point of view? 
Yeah. So, I mean, that can definitely be difficult and it depends on the situation, as you said. But when you look at some of the the data on the best ways to facilitate long-term changes in beliefs or behaviors, and kind of the best way to go about that is to create an environment that allows the learner to realize their own mistakes. So you want to put them in a situation where they're able to realize that their intuitions or their prior beliefs are incomplete or inaccurate. You know, that's easy to say. It, It can be hard to do. And if they're really not getting it, what you can always try to do is create some sort of analogous situation where maybe the problem is exaggerated a little bit, or maybe it's a little bit more relatable for the person. And then they can see it a little bit easier. And then in a stepwise fashion, kind of build them back to the initial problem. But, but say there are too many unknown unknowns, say the student really just doesn't see it. Um, it can be, it can be difficult. You know, you don't want to just explicitly tell them they're wrong because that can easily come off as condescending or it can sound like maybe you're patronizing them, like you're talking to a little sibling or something like that. Yeah. Um, but so some of the best ways are going to be to the Socratic method seems to work really well with people. Again, kind of questioning and pushing them to come up with the answers for themselves. That tends to work pretty well for people. Again, sometimes you do have to introduce a little bit more information to the situation, but it's best you just are very mindful of the tone that comes across and you can see that, you know, you understand that why they think the way they do, given the information they have. But if they know this piece of information or if they consider this, then maybe it will change their perspective. And again, it's easy to say it it requires a lot of time and requires a lot of effort. But if you have that and the person's worth it, and that's the way you kind of want to go about it. Yeah, no, for sure. I think those are some great points. And they kind of actually coincide with Um, I took the APTA CI course this past weekend and, you know, they brought up this issue a lot and we kind of problem solved through that a little bit. And and some of what they said was pretty spot on to kind of what you were saying as well. And I think even too, you know, what you said before is facilitating that environment good with learning and with the instructor being approachable, being very knowledgeable, but also being like basically being respectable in all ways so that that person feels comfortable with you in any aspect. So I agree with you. I think that other method is definitely the easiest one for them to be able to self-reflect as well, you know, because that's huge. I mean, I mean, we don't want to just get someone used to have being told at people anyway, because that's not going to help the learner long term if they can't come up with it. Because in the real world, you have to be able to self-reflect, especially in the clinical world, because I mean, that's, that's so critical. And as a student, I didn't understand that at the time. I thought my instructors were honestly being lazy, but I look back, I mean, I did, I didn't know. But now I look back and I'm like, oh no, this is what they are preparing me for. Exactly. I, I thank you. Yeah, it's kind of the concept of, you know, giving somebody a fish or teaching them how to fish, right? You want to facilitate that process so they have a way of, you know, that knowledge being a little bit more transferable. And so they can implement that in different situations. Yeah, and kind of give them like a safe space to fail pretty much exactly. so they can kind of learn and adapt for it without any of the significant consequences mm-hmm. that potentially could result. So Jason, thanks for this, you know, this great discussion on this issue. I feel like there's a lot that I've definitely learned that I will try out as well. And and Jason, one question that we ask at the end of every episode, but because we're just really wanting to hear everyone's insight on this question. And the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education um, and DPT or other healthcare provider related, what aspect would you change and how would you recommend changing it? <laughs> uh, easy solution right there, right? Um, no, I mean, it kind of goes along with the conversation we've had tonight in terms of our value structure and using science in a way to complement our clinical practice. 
So many people have this immediate knee-jerk response when a randomized controlled trial or something comes out that goes against their intuitions or the way they've been practicing. And they'll fall back on these default answers in terms of relying on clinical outcomes or their experience or the patient preferences. And not that those things should be discounted because they shouldn't at all. They are important parts of the process. But everybody always equates that each one of those aspects of, of Sackett's stool which is a bad analogy, but I'll leave it there for now. Each one of those provides equally weighted information about the same topic, and that's just not the case. So I wish it was taught a little bit better and that people had a little bit better value system on how to perceive that information that's coming in and how to use it to best manage their their clients or their patients, excuse me. So that's that's definitely something I wish was valued a little bit more. And I don't know if that could change in terms of the PT curriculum if putting more emphasis on that would kind of instill that in people or if that's something that you know may need to come from outside sources maybe even before PT school I, I don't know I wish I had a simple answer for that because that is definitely a uh, a problem that doesn't only affect us as PTs but I mean that's just something that kind of is a unfortunate trend for humanity <laughs> so so many people again to the point I made earlier about cookbook medicine it's they assume that that's the default position, but in reality, science is never going to be that granular where it's going to be able to tell you exactly what to do with your patient for the entire duration of the time. At best, it's going to give us you know, probabilities in terms of what we need to focus on and, and how we need to manage them. And then contextualizing that for the individual is always going to be up to you as a clinician. And it's going to look very different patient to patient, even if you're following the same evidence. So that's what I wish we could get across is that um, just the inherent value of that in our day-to-day life as clinicians. Absolutely. And even from provider to provider as well, given the same patient. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Jason, man, thanks so much for coming on with everything. I mean, it was really great to hear. And I'll also give him a shout out for those interested. Uh, Jason will be giving a free webinar Thursday, October 19th from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern time on tendinopathy management. And the link for this will be provided in our show notes for those to access. And, you know, and Jason, do you think that you could tell our listeners where they can find you online and social media? Uh, sure. I, I'm pretty active on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter's mostly me more professionally. I'll, I'll share a bunch of links and papers that I like to read. And Facebook, not as much professionally, but I'll definitely engage with anyone willing to talk to me. So like, I don't put out a lot of unsolicited advice. I don't typically, um, if you have a thread up on something, I probably won't comment on it. But if you tag me, or if you're, you're willing to get my opinion on something or want to get more perspective, I'll, I'll never turn that down. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for coming on and best of luck with the upcoming webinar, man. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.